You're listening to The Two Poles, a new podcast produced by farfeatures.com. The world has changed. Everywhere you look, people are stuck inside. We can't go outside. And we can't see our friends. But we can still talk. Come travel to the Arctic and Antarctica. This is The Two Poles, a new podcast exploring our present and future with the Arctic and Antarctica. Each week I'll be speaking to scientists, explorers, adventurers, writers, filmmakers, musicians and regular people who live and work in the polar regions. They'll bring you unique access and insights into some of the most remote and fastest warming places on the planet. In this first episode, I'm speaking to Matthew Phillips. He's worked for the British Antarctic Survey for the past nine years. Matthew has a wealth of knowledge about the Antarctic. And at the time of recording, he was one of the last people on Earth to be heading down to the Antarctic and escape humanity's pandemic. In this episode, we'll unpack some of Matthew's thoughts about what it's like to live on the continent during winter, And also, during this chaotic time, what it's like to be escaping humanity to head down to the last continent on Earth where the coronavirus has yet to reach. This is episode one of the Two Poles podcast with Matthew Phillips. Matthew, great to talk. How are you? I'm very well, thanks. Especially when I'm on the other side of the planet. So let's just jump straight into this. Matthew, can you just explain where are you and where are you going? Uh, I'm currently in the small town of about 2,000 people, uh, Stanley, which is the capital of the Falcon Islands in the South Atlantic. Uh, It's the British Overseas Territory, uh, and I'm basically sat here now having to self-isolate before then carrying on, hopefully, to the British Antarctic Survey or BASA's uh, research station, Rothera, for the winter. And how long are you going to be going down there for, to Antarctica? I don't have a set departure date yet or when I'll return, but I expect it'll be November or December later this year, but with, uh, obviously, the current kind of climate globally, um, uh, kind of anyone's guess is best there, really, but, uh, yeah, that's currently when I expect to leave, so we'll see. And so how does it feel right now in this moment, which is a pretty historic moment, um, to be going to the safest place on Earth? Because as we speak today, there are currently 600,000 cases of the coronavirus worldwide, 30,000 deaths, but there are no recorded cases at all in the entire continent of Antarctica. And how does it feel in this moment to be going to that place? Yeah, um, 
But yeah, I think as, as far as the coronavirus goes, it's definitely the safest place. Um, there's still plenty of other dangers there, but yeah, there's, there's definitely on my part, there's a kind of there's two sides to the coin. Essentially, there's there is a bit of relief about going down there and well, hopefully getting down there where the virus isn't present currently. Um, and so that that's quite nice. But at the same time, though, I've got a kind of pang of guilt essentially about leaving the real world uh, and going down there while there's kind of essentially a bit of carnage going on in the world. But um, well, essentially, I've got a bit of a job to do and without kind of sounding dramatic, um, I'm quite keen to get down there and to get started on it as well. So, um, yeah, I'm looking forward to essentially moving on because um, I did a fair bit of self-isolation in the UK before I actually flew down here and I'm going to have to do another 14 days here. So I think my total self-isolation time is going to amount to more than three weeks by uh, by the time I actually get to the station. And so can we just talk a little bit about these, the normal precautions that you have to take going to Antarctica and now these extra precautions, what kind of differences are you experiencing? So normally everyone who goes south with bass each year, obviously if you're wintering, uh, you, you do even more, but essentially everyone has to go down uh, with a kind of current medical. I'm at the age now where I have to do a medical every three years. Uh, you fill out a fairly lengthy medical form, even if you're just going down for the summer once when it's, you know, in theory easier to get you off station if you were to suddenly fall ill. So in winter, it's, it's obviously a bit heightened in the various hoops that you have to jump through to get down there. Currently, though, with the coronavirus, um, Bass stopped sending people south. There was still about 50 people due to go down to Rotherham uh, from the start of March for the next month or so. Um, but that's been cut right back, and I'm now essentially the only person who's been sent down since kind of coronavirus really started affecting the Bass operation. So, um, yeah, they, they've basically wrapped me up in hot and wool. I'm in this house in Stanley now. Um, and there's a, a small bass office here in Stanley, which is operated by one person. And uh, they're essentially delivering food for me. I'm not even meant to go outside, which is partly the Falcons government. But I think uh, bass are quite happy for me not to be outside. And there isn't a confirmed case of the coronavirus here, but um, there is a one suspected case, which we expect to hear about in the next day or two. So it may or may not be here, but... Uh, yeah, essentially, I'm uh, being wrapped in cotton wool by bass at the moment so they can hopefully get me to the station without taking the virus there. And what kind of repercussions, like try and paint a picture for people who maybe don't know as much as you do, obviously, about working and living in Antarctica, but what kind of repercussions would there be if the virus reached Antarctica? Yes, it's difficult to say because... Um, you know, at first, I think all the media um, reports were suggesting and all the, the advice we're getting from medical experts were that um, it was generally people with underlying health conditions that were really suffering within it at the kind of highest risk. Generally speaking, uh, the population down on station is a very healthy one. Everyone goes through a pretty stringent uh, medical exam, like I mentioned before. So on that hand, it would be okay. But at the same time, you know, we, we don't, have any serious medical equipment down there we have a, a doctor on station but you know if it were to get to station and was you know, to get through a, you know, a large number of the people on station it would suddenly put us under massive strain so um yeah it's uh, it's pretty important that i don't take it down i'm gonna have to be very honest about how i'm feeling just 
before I uh, depart south to get there. But yeah, I mean, especially this time of year going into winter, like I said, I'm going on what will probably be the last flight uh, before winter. Uh, two weeks after that, I think around the 27th of April, the ship will leave for the last time, and then that will be us into winter. Um, shortly after that, at some point in May, the sun will disappear below the horizon. We won't see the sun for 60 days. Um, and then sometime in October, after almost six months of us being alone, uh, we should get a plane back in. But generally in that time, unless there's a kind of life death emergency, um, it is very unlikely that anyone will come or go from station. I'm not sure how true this next uh, sort of little tale is, but apparently it's easier to get someone off the International Space Station than it is to get someone out of Antarctica during winter. Um, so it may or may not, not be true, but uh, it's probably not far from the truth. Can we just talk a little bit about why it's so the difficulty of actually reaching Antarctica and the journey itself. So I understand that you most of the time you take a ship um, and you go across the Drake Passage, uh, but you said this time you're flying. So just kind of paint a picture of what it's like actually going down to Antarctica. Yeah, sure. So, um, yeah, gen- generally everyone with Bass normally the kind of point of departure is normally the UK um, and then they normally fly to either South America, uh, Chile, and then potentially fly from there or get on a ship there, the, the other point of departure uh, to actually get onto your station is from the Falkland Islands where I am just now. And whether you take a ship or whether you fly is largely down to which station you're going to. So Bass operates five Antarctic stations, um, three of them winter, two of them are, are summer only. But the difference with the station that I'm going to, um, Rothera and the other four is that we have a, a small runway. So we have, we have five aircraft in total that we operate that go, um, basically in and out of Rothera from Chile. But then four of those planes are the smaller ones that actually do the field science. And that's, we use Rothera as a kind of launch pad for the scientists going out into the deeper field uh, to do their science projects out in the absolute middle of nowhere, the, the real wilderness in Antarctica. And just talk a little bit about the continent itself um, and the ocean voyage when you do take a ship and and what surrounds the continent itself and why it's so difficult to get to. Yeah, so it's obviously smack bang at the bottom of the planet. Um, and yes, it's the seventh continent. It's uh, for people who don't know, it's, it's, it's massive, it's huge. It's about one and a half times the size of the United States of America. So it's absolutely vast and it's surrounded by the Southern Ocean. So if you look at a picture of the globe and say if you look at it from the bottom, you'll, you'll see the Antarctic continent in its whole. It's quite hard to picture that if you look at a kind of a landscape uh, map of, uh, of the planet. But if you imagine there's a kind of washing machine of weather that's constantly wrapping itself around the continent, that kind of traps in a lot of that kind of cold, harsh weather, uh, the Antarctic weather. Um, but it also means that there's this huge uninterrupted ocean that's just doing laps around the continent. And so, yeah, the Drake Passage is this small, relatively small body of water 
between the southern tip of South America and then the tip of uh, the Antarctic Peninsula. And so there's a kind of funnel effect in there, and it's got this horrible, terrible reputation for being, you know, having huge seas and being, you know, making even the most uh, hardy seamen seasick and stuff like that. Um, so I, I've done it a few times. Um, I've done it when it's been really rough and it's certainly not pleasant. Um, I have done it when it's been very, very flat, actually, and it is often nicknamed the Drake Lake, but um, I wouldn't want to uh, say that it's like that all the time because that's definitely not the case. So going down there, I mean, is there, are you worried about taking the virus down there? You did mention that before we started the call. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm massively worried about that. I think, um, yeah, <laughs> yeah. If I, if I was to take it down, um, I, it wouldn't ever be forgotten. I don't think that I took the virus uh, down to Rothera. Um, the, the one good thing would be that if I did take it down, um, the chances of me getting it onto any of the other stations are pretty much zero because we don't really have interaction with those other stations because uh, they're all hundreds of miles apart and obviously there's no roads or anything down there. Um, so that would be one thing. But um, yeah, I don't think I would uh, ever live it down at Bass if, if I took the virus down there. So yeah, I think even if I got a sniffle or anything like that, I'm going to have to uh, chat to uh, the medical guys at uh, Bass and, uh, and they'll probably make that decision for me, to be honest. But uh yeah, yeah, it's, de it's definitely a concern. I mean, I, I feel absolutely fine at the moment. And so as long as I feel like this, I'll be quite happy to go down. But um, yeah, I think if I'm in any doubt, I'm going to put my hand up pretty quickly. And so how does it feel also not knowing what's going to happen in the rest of the world? And will you have contacts and communications? Because sometimes I've tried to talk to you when you've been down there. And obviously it's at the bottom of the planet, very remote and communication is limited. So will you have communication? And when you said goodbye to your family and friends, was that kind of diff more difficult this time? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's always weird. And so this is me going down for my now sixth winter. Um, and this seven months, while well, that might appear like a long time to a lot of people, it's actually the shortest uh, stint that I've done down there just so that people can understand that when I say I go down for seven months, I'm there for seven months and I don't come back out. You know, you hear about a lot of the guys in the military saying, oh, they're going on, on tour or whatever for, you know, five, six months, but they get a month or two, you know, R&R &R leave in the middle of there. Whereas when we go down, there's no real coming back out. So, um, yeah, but every time I go down, I'm fully aware that I'm essentially rolling the dice uh, and saying goodbye to families always, it's not difficult, but there is in the back of my head, you know, this kind of horrible feeling that with some of them, um, I, I might not necessarily see them again. I'm in a nice situation where all my family are, are fit and healthy and, you know, there's no health issues there. Um, that could quite quickly change as I'm down there. So, yeah, it is one of the difficult things about going south. Um but you can't really put your, your life on it. I don't see it that way, that you can put your life on hold uh, because of a, a what-if situation. You know, this might happen, that might happen. I think you've just got to get on with it. Um, what was quite different, actually, this time, about heading south was that um, when I was saying goodbye to everyone, um, the whole social distancing thing in the UK had, uh, had really picked, picked up. So 
you know, there was no, there was no cuddling or shaking hands, uh, you know, cuddles with my parents or my, shaking hands with my brothers or anything like that. So yeah, it all felt really quite, uh, quite strange in a way, but uh, it's just got to be done at the moment. And so when you go down there, just so we understand a little bit about the measures that are taken to keep Antarctica free from viruses, but also free from any sort of contamination of any kind. Um, and I'm just remembering when I was down there, there were very extreme measures about stepping onto the continent and constantly having to clean yourself off and really the extra measures that are in place. Can you just describe those to try and keep the continent pristine? Yeah, sure. So, uh, yeah, there's a whole department at uh, BAST back in Cambridge, the Environment Department, and a huge part of their focus on what they do is, is essentially, like you're saying, you know, making sure that we don't introduce uh, anything that shouldn't be there, any inv invasive species. So, yeah, biosecurity is a, a massive part of it, and it's something that we all have to do before we head down to the station is make sure that any of the clothing, any of the equipment that we take down, you know, doesn't, you know, isn't kind of like the soles of your, your walking boots or whatever aren't, you know, kind of caked in soil, you know, from the Scottish Highlands or something like that. And you're going to introduce some kind of plant that is very unlikely to take in the Antarctic, to be honest. But that's not a risk that anyone wants to run. So, yeah, I mean, it's there's not many places on the planet and there's certainly nowhere on the scale uh, or as unique as the Antarctic is that hasn't been kind of affected by human uh, behaviour. And so we've really not affected that continent very much. Um, so, yeah, huge focus in what we do and how we operate is to reduce and uh, limit any kind of you know, change that, that we might be kind of guilty of through carrying some kind of invasive species down. And I remember reading in one of your blogs a while back, and oh, by the way, just so everyone knows, Matthew runs a photography blog, which people can go on and check out. Do you want to just say the name of the blog? It's, uh, yeah, it's a bit, I need to do a bit of work and get it up to date. Uh, but uh, yeah, it's uh, Matthew Phillips Photography is, is what the website's called. And yeah, the blog's the kind of first page on there, so. Yeah, modest as ever. It's great. People go on and check it out. But I remember reading on one of your blog posts a couple of years back that in the past there has been outside influence that have been introduced to the continent. And was there something that happened in South Georgia with rats getting onto the island? And can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, that, that, that was a great project. Um, so that wasn't through the British Antarctic Survey. That was, uh, like you say, this is on South Georgia, so it's sub, a sub-Antarctic island. Um, and it's famous essentially for two things, one of them being Ernest Shackleton, the British explorer, uh, and the other thing is whaling, uh, which has obviously got quite a bad reputation these days. Um, but essentially the whalers turned up at South Georgia 100 years ago, uh, 120 years ago, uh, and, you know, because such a rich sea life and an abundance of it in South Georgia, there was a huge number of whales, and so it was the kind of epicenter for whaling, really, um, in the world. And we think, we believe it was the whalers, it might have been someone else, but they seem to have kind of taken the blame for it. Um, but rats were introduced to the island and South Georgia's, it's as wild as kind of islands come. 
And so there's no trees on the island, and so all of the birds, and so there's a massive population of uh, albatross, so wandering uh, black-browed, um, light-mantled sooty albatross, and lots of other seabirds as well on the island. Um, and because they were all ground nesting, they were just decimated by the rats. So um, a few years back, uh, the South Georgia Heritage Trust decided that they were going to try and do something about it and essentially uh, got a lot of funding, uh, bought three helicopters and got a team together of about uh, 20 people. And basically, I think year one, uh, which was maybe 2012, they went there and uh, baited with the use of the helicopters uh, one third of the island and then monitored that for two years. And after they saw that was a success, they went back, debated another third of the island, waited another two years, and then did the same again. And so over the course of six years, they baited the whole island, which is about 110 miles long um, and has some uh, uh, pretty dramatic uh, terrain to the island. So, yeah, what they did there was pretty fantastic. And then I was lucky enough, I was invited uh, to go and help and join the team that went back and did the monitoring two years after the, the final phase of baiting had happened. Um, and essentially, we got to land on various different parts of the island where um, the rats had been or where they suspected rats. And we set out lots of monitoring stations. And then they were collected in sort of five, six months later, once the rats, if they were there, uh, would have had plenty of chance to kind of take the bait, essentially, uh, and would have left some kind of trace of them being there, but fortunately, um, there's there's been no sign. So yeah, that's, that that was a great thing to be involved with, um, and hopefully it stays that way. So uh, time will tell, though. Right, and so that is an absolute priority for the British Antarctic Survey, and I guess for all the other research bases that are down in Antarctica is not to introduce any foreign agents whatsoever onto the continent, whether that's through. Um, the ships that are visiting the islands, whether that is from people coming in on planes um, and humans and animals as well. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, yeah, one, one of the things about living in the Antarctic, one of the things that uh, like people might not pick up on straight away is that uh, we don't have a great supply of fresh fruit and vegetables. Um, so occasionally when the ship arrives or when the plane arrives and it's got a bit of additional payload available, uh, we, we try to get uh, fresh fruit and veg put on board. And that is quite often a kind of a magnet for small bugs and things like that, which are exactly the kind of thing that we really don't want to introduce down there. I think, you know, rats and mice, they're almost, they're not that difficult to eradicate if, if you know, if they were to suddenly arrive. Um, but things like, earwigs and spiders and stuff, they tend to be a little trickier to get rid of. So, yeah, whenever we get a supply of fresh fruit and veg, we open every single box and inspect every single tomato, apple, um, salads, cucumber, you know, whatever it is we get. We can have a close look at each one to, to make sure that there's nothing in there. And our suppliers are kind of quite well trained, if you like, in uh, doing the same before it even departs or put, gets put onto one of our planes or onto the ship as well. So we, we, we're kind of the last line of defence. But uh, yeah, it's all taken very, very seriously. It takes a lot of time, but it's, uh, it's worth it for fresh fruit and veg. So you really are just so cut off from the rest of the world down there. And just try and paint a little bit of a picture of daily life for you guys when you're down there on the base. Obviously, there's 
no no banks, no streets. You know, there's the McMurdo Station, the American base, and that's a little bit more like a town. But other than that, can you just describe what there is and what there isn't in the bases where you are down there? Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah so you're absolutely right. McMurdo's, it's the kind of metropolis of the Antarctic, I think, and some of them have about 1,500 personnel on station, um, whereas rather which I, I now think is maybe the second largest numbers-wise um, station in Antarctica, certainly in the summer. So we're up to about 150, 160 people on station now. So there's a, there's a big difference, you know, between pretty much every station and McMurdo. So, yeah, it, like you say, it's much, much bigger. Um, and, yes, our internet is generally pretty poor. If, uh, if you were alive in the late 90s, uh, you'll know what dial-up internet was like. That is basically what we have, um, but then that is shared between those 150, 160 people. In winter, it's a little easier because you're sharing that with sort of 20 people. Um, yeah, no no streets. Uh, we do have a, a small bar on station, um, but you don't carry money. It's all done on an honesty tick sheet. Um, you don't really have to, you don't pay for your food. Um, it's all provided for you. You're in shared accommodation. Um, most people, or maybe half the people, are in a room with one other person. So you're sharing with someone. You've got a small ensuite shower. Um, the other half of the people can be sharing uh, in a, basically a bunk room with up to three other people. So maybe a room of four. Um, you're really restricted in where you can walk because obviously within just 200 meters of station, there's there's ice cliffs, there's uh, the sea temperatures zero degrees uh, or minus one. Um, and so you've got to be very careful with the environment around you. And it's kind of, after a while, the danger is that you get a bit uh, complacent about where you are. But uh, I think every now and then someone gets a bit of a warning where they are. You know, if they, they I don't know, they go outside without their, their hat or their gloves thinking it'll be absolutely fine. And then on the return journey from one of the buildings, they'll suddenly find that they're out in a pretty much white-out condition and all of a sudden they're, uh, they're getting quite uncomfortable very, very quickly. Um, yeah, and, and like I said, in, in winter we are very much cut off. You know, no one's coming or going for the six or seven months. Um, the only communication we have is basically through internet um, with other people and then we've just got ourselves for an entertainment and so how do you entertain yourself down there in the dark winter months? And just explain a little bit about the light down there and the seasons in Antarctica. And then after that, if you could just go on to explain a little bit about how you guys do actually keep sane. Yeah, sure. Um, so, so yeah, in, in winter, uh, normally towards the end of May, uh, rather a... Uh, the sun disappears below the horizon and then we'll, we'll stay that way and we'll, we'll go for up to 60 days or around 60 days, I should say. Um, we still do get some light during that time. We, you know, Even on the shortest day, the 21st of June, we get maybe two hours of twilight um, where obviously the sun's not above the horizon, but it's not completely dark, so you don't necessarily need a torch to find your way around station. Um, and that, I actually don't find those two winter months of kind of darkness, if you like, I don't find them that difficult. Um, 
I, I do find the kind of the shoulder ends of the season um, where the light is changing so quickly because obviously in the height of summer, uh, we have the opposite. We have two months of 24-hour sunlight. So um, I find the change in the season, you know, around this time of year where there's probably about a 20-minute difference in daylight, day-to-day, it's changing really rapidly. Um, I find that that really messes with my sleep pattern. I don't think... Uh, that's too unusual. I think that does affect quite a lot of people down there. Um, daily, daily life's a difficult one. Um, so, so everyone has their jobs, um, but everyone also kind of helps and interacts with other people. Um, if you know someone has a job on that requires a few extra pair of hands and stuff, whether that's the plumber or you know whether that's the chef who needs to move a huge amount of food from one of the storerooms into one of the freezers, because we get all of our food at what we call first call, which is in January, uh, and pretty much everything uh, we eat and we get for the year arrives on that one ship. So that's a year's worth of food. It's a year's worth of uh, toilet roll, um, which is obviously in shop supply in some places in the planet at the moment. Um, and everything, you know, the, all the equipment that people need to do for their, their jobs, you know, whether that's the electricians, again, the plumbers or the doctor and absolutely everyone, all, all the office supplies and things like that. And so it's a huge, huge shopping list. And so that's constantly being kind of moved around and relocated to certain different parts of the station. And so actually just, you're, we're essentially running a small town, if you like, with what we're doing and running a kind of a small supermarket. And, you know, there's, there's sewage to run and, you know, there's all these little things that, that go on that I think often go unseen. Um, and one of the things that rather, which I think definitely goes, um, uh, kind of passes past people quite a lot is that, uh, all of our water, our drinking water is, uh, basically seawater that has gone through a reverse osmosis plant to, uh, remove the salt and so on. So there's all these little things and all these machines that we need to keep running to kind of keep the station, uh, functional. Um, so far as entertaining ourselves and, um, you know, kind of whittling away the long winter months, um, we are really lucky. We've got a really good metal workshop, uh, wood workshop. Um, there's what we call the big TV room and we've got lots of films and TV series and stuff that we can watch in there. There's a music room, which has probably got 10 acoustic guitars, five electric guitars, two drum sets. You know, all, all these random music instruments and stuff like that. Um, there's an arts and crafts room. And so there's a huge amount to do. And, you know, like we were kind of mentioning, I quite like my photography. And even though it's fallen a bit by the wayside, um, some of the photography down there is absolutely phenomenal with it being such uh, an amazing environment, so picturesque. So, yeah, there's a huge amount to do. People often ask me, but, you know, how, how do you keep yourself entertained? I struggle to find time to, to do all the things that I want to do, if I'm being honest. Um, so it's just what you make of it, I think. And don't you have a film festival down there as well? <laughs> yeah, we do. So um, that, that was started, I believe, by uh, McMurdo, which we just mentioned a while ago. Um, so McMurdo has about 190 people there, I think, in winter. They did last year. Um, and the story goes that years ago they thought, well, all right, why don't we do one of these 48-hour film competitions, you know, where you have 48 hours to to film and edit and then, you know, create this this film and you have certain, you know, criteria that you need to meet, whether that's a line of dialogue or a prop and stuff that you need to put in there. So they, they did that uh, and they really enjoyed that. And the next year they then contacted the other American bases 
and said, oh, we did this last year. Do you want to do it again this year? And so I think the three American stations that are wintering, I think it's three, um, did this 48-hour film competition. That was a big success. And now they've opened it up to absolutely every station that winters. And so it's this absolutely brilliant thing. So it's normally the first weekend in August, which is towards the end of winter. And so it's it's actually my favourite weekend, um, I think, on station. Um, I, I'm, I, I like my films and stuff, so it's probably quite well suited to me. But uh, yeah, we we made a film last year. Um, and I don't, have you seen it actually? No, I would love to see this. Okay, all right. So, so I need to explain a little bit about this. Um, so um, before the internet and before, um, you know, digital hard drives and things like that, um, and certainly before 97, um, Bass didn't actually have uh, any wintering females. Um, and so, <laughs> um, so pornography, there was always a suitcase of pornography essentially on each station. And it's, uh, it's a bit of a, a tradition and a bit of a laughing matter, or always has been. And last year there was, there was a suitcase in one of the accommodation buildings. And obviously that's not really right having you know, essentially a suitcase of pornography in an accommodation building uh, where people are working. So the decision was made uh, to essentially destroy this suitcase, which, uh, you know, I think was taken quite well, but did cause a bit of controversy on station. Uh, and there was certainly a few comments. So this, and that happens uh, January 2018, and then so, uh, sorry, 2019. And then for our winter film, we decided to do a bit of a tribute to the suitcase. So we, uh, our film last year was called Rotherham Does a Porno. Uh, and if you're familiar with the carry-on films, um, it's probably in the style of them. You know, it's quite tongue-in-cheek and actually relatively innocent. Um, but uh, we we ended up winning the competition by by a bit of a distance, actually. So um, I think the whole uh, sexual frustration thing probably uh, struck a bit of a note with a few of the other stations. Amazing. I want to see this film. It is on YouTube. I will look it up and I will put the link to the film at the end of this podcast so anyone else can go and watch it as well. Do you do you find yourself I, I, watching the, is it The Thing, that Antarctic horror film? Is that on repeat down there? Um, it is... So yeah, we do watch it. It's watched at least once a year on the station and it is now a tradition with the bass stations that on midwinter's day, the 21st of June, which is obviously the, the kind of the darkest day and you know, that's you smack bang in the middle of winter. Uh, the tradition is that you watch the thing on station. Um, and yeah, and then one of the things that we do is that on all the stations because you're so remote and you know, all the systems we have and all the, the power and all the water and everything, all the buildings we have, you know, if someone leaves a window open or something like, like that, or, you know, there's a leak somewhere, then we want to know about it. So every night on station, somebody walks around and basically walks into every room on station other than the ones that other people are sleeping in uh, and just checks that everything's okay. So some poor soul every year has to watch the thing and then in the darkness head out with a torch off and into the snow and the cold um, and check every room on station, which takes about an hour. Um, and having just watched the thing, it's probably not the most comfortable thing to do in the world. And just explain the, the brief synopsis of that film for anyone that hasn't watched it. 
Um, well, so actually, I think it's quite apt at the moment, uh, and it's given me a bit of an idea for this uh, coming Winter's 48-hour film competition. And um, essentially, it's um, an Antarctic station. It's a fictional one. Um, and they discover something in the ice, and it turns out to be this alien that can mimic anyone. And so it essentially kind of grabs you, um, consumes you, and then takes your shape um, and it's almost impossible to tell. And apparently the story goes that um, the director kind of got inspiration from the communist kind of witch hunts in the States um, and because no one trusted anyone and everyone was thinking, oh, they, they are communist. And, you know, and so that's, I think, essentially what the thing is. Everyone's thinking, you know, that person might be the thing, they might be the alien, but there's no way of telling, so no one trusts anyone. So actually, I, I was thinking this the other week in the UK, I was walking along the street just before everything was kind of put into lockdown. But, you know, people were giving me a white berth on the street and staying far away from each other and stuff. And I was like, oh, it's, actually, it's a bit like the thing now because no one trusts anyone and no one wants to get near anyone and no one can tell who's got, uh, you know, the virus and stuff like that. So there are kind of similarities with it. But, yeah, essentially, it's quite a scary film. Um, and, yeah, it's a, it's a big tradition for us to watch that in winter. And so now I guess we've kind of skipped way past it, but we should backtrack. So let's explain a little bit about We've covered daily life and what it's like to be down there, but during the during daylight hours, which also you don't have any because you're going to be in the middle of winter, so it's going to be perpetual night, but what are you actually going down to do there? What is your specific job and um, how do you and the team work together? So so I'm the, the winter station leader, which yeah, pretty much means... I'm, uh, I'm the nasty guy who sits behind the desk and bosses people around, although generally speaking, no one needs that because Bass does tend to employ very kind of talented and skilled people and there's quite a lot of interest in the job. So we, we tend to get very kind of good and skilled staff. Um, so during winter, I kind of essentially make sure that everything's kind of running as as it should and organize some of the social events and so midwinter's week is quite a big event and there's quite a lot that goes into that and so to try and kind of take a bit of weight off other people's shoulders i organize a few of the social things around that and midwinter's day i go around and take tea and coffee to everyone in their bed and stuff like that and we'll, you know bring them a cooked breakfast if they want in bed and things like that um weekly stuff um i, I do the kind of the rotors for um for the people covering for the chef when he has his days off, uh, the rotor for the people who do their kind of a week of nights, um, and the, the weekly cleaning job. I'm also the kind of conduit, if you like, between Bass Cambridge, which is the headquarters for Bass, and the station. And so on Monday morning, we all have a sit down and a, a, a meeting on station, and I kind of deliver any news that's come from Bass Cambridge, whether that's to do with personnel coming down next year or ship movements and things like that. Um, essentially, um, I'm your kind of everyday manager. Um, I just get to do it in a pretty amazing place. Um, so yeah, it's a bit like running a, a small hotel or a small village, if you like. Yeah. But your guests are made up of polar scientists who are doing pretty incredible work. I mean, can you just explain, so who are the, who, who are the people who are there? 
within your team and what are they doing on base and out on the continent? Yeah, yeah. So that's actually quite a good question. I think something that a lot of people tend to assume is that essentially it's kind of the station is packed with scientists, whereas in reality, we have three or four scientists through winter in a team of, well, there was 23 of us last year. Um, so there's actually a, a huge amount of other staff who support the station, keep the station running. So we have generators that which supply our power. So there's a generator mechanic. Uh, we still have vehicles that we need to operate in winter because we obviously need to clear some uh, roads on station of snow and doorways and things like that. So we have two vehicle mechanics. We have a vehicle operator. We have five field guides who are essentially mountaineers. Um, so we're, we, um, at the start of winter and towards the end of winter, you, you get off station for a week and get to go on a, a winter trip. Uh, so the field guides are there to kind of do that and essentially take you camping and keep you safe while you do that. Uh, there's a doctor, there's a chef, there's myself, the station leader, um, electricians, plumbers, carpenters, um, and then Yes, we have scientists. So we have uh, an atmospheric scientist who launches weather balloons every couple of days and does weather observations, which then get fed into kind of global um, weather systems and stuff and models. And we also have the marine team. And so they're, they're really quite active even through winter with their science. So they are largely looking at what's on the, the bottom of the, the seabed and uh, and are, it's a long-term study and they're trying to determine how well the wildlife down there is adapting to the increase in uh, sea temperature. Um, so we, I believe, are the only station that continues to dive all year round. Uh, lots of other stations will dive during summer. I don't think anyone else other than Lodera continues to dive in winter. And so obviously we're far enough south that we get surrounded in the, the kind of island that we live on is locked in by sea ice so um one thing that we get to do which is quite cool but also from my point of view is absolutely terrifying is that when the sea ice gets to 20 centimeters or thicker um i can then let people travel on the sea ice and so the marine team at that point go out onto the sea ice uh, and the dive officer takes uh, a massive chainsaw to the sea ice and cuts a hole in it so that they can continue diving. Um, and seeing someone wield this kind of six foot long chainsaw and start to cut into sea ice with it when you are hundreds of miles from any kind of help that even if it does get there is going to have a really hard time landing uh, on a runway that's covered in snow is uh, it's quite terrifying the first time you see it. It's actually quite safe, but it just looks absolutely terrifying the first time you see it. Right, and because so much of your job is related to the safety of the people down there. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, so that, that's, yeah, I, I should have mentioned that really. Um, so, yeah, I have to kind of make a lot of decisions based around safety, whether or not, you know, the field guides are, whether it's okay for them or I'm happy for them to go uh, on their winter trip with someone and get them off station for a week or whether they're just simply going out for a day because, you know, they can, we've actually got quite a lot of, uh, good kind of climbing potential near us uh, and there's some skiing as well and so so I, yeah, I have to make those decisions um but bass are generally very good where um a lot of the other national programs in the antarctic are quite uh 
you know, they're, they're quite strict on what they'll allow their staff to do. So a lot of the other ones won't let uh, their people ski or go snowboarding, whereas Bass actually encourage it and see the benefits of that, you know, you know, from, you know, just a physical, but from a mental health point of view as well. So, um, yeah, a lot of what I have to do is kind of decision making and, you know, yeah, <laughs> hopefully not making mistakes and sending someone into a potentially dangerous situation. But um, I've, got, I've got really good backup back at Cambridge and there's really quite good guidelines on what we should and shouldn't go out on. So um, I don't often get nagged too much to uh, to let people go out and have a bit of fun, fortunately. Can you just describe, paint a little bit of a picture about when you do get to go out on base and what the what you experience? I think it's one of those things that it's quite hard to explain, but if, you know, if people have seen any of the kind of frozen planet, you know, the uh, Sir David Attenborough uh, documentaries, then, then they'll have an idea, but it's just this vast uh, wilderness. And it's essentially, we, we're on an island called Adelaide Island. It's about 100, 100 miles long or so. Um, and there are three peaks, which are close to 3,000 metres high, uh, and then hundreds of other ones, you know, over, you know, a hundred, a uh, thousand meters high. Um, and so in theory, we have access to a lot of these. Some of them, you know, we're, we're not allowed to travel to because it's just too dangerous. Um, essentially the island's covered in uh, what is called an ice pedemont, which is almost like a big kind of, I feel like a floating sort of glacier. It's just a big sheet of ice, which is kind of sat on top of the land. Uh, and so there's obviously crevasses and stuff in that. So we have to be very careful about how we, how we travel. And that's where the field guides come in. Um, and so as soon as you go into that kind of terrain, you're, you're roped up, whether that's, you know, if you're walking or whether you're on skis or if you're traveling by skidoo, you're then clipped in and you're kind of tied into your skidoo. And then you're also connected to the skidoo in front or behind you as well. So that, if, you know, something does fall into a crevasse or something, then hopefully there's enough weight on the other end of the system to stop you falling in. Um, but yeah, and skiing is fantastic. Um, you don't have uh, toes or, you know, gondolas or anything like that to take you to the top. So you really do have to earn your turns, as they say. Um, and so, yeah, you have to walk or you have to put skins on the bottom of your skis, if people are familiar with that, um, and get to the top of where you want to ski from. And then you ski back down. Generally, it takes you you know, a fraction of the time to get down there to get you up, but uh, it is normally uh, worth the reward because, yeah, the, the views from the tops of these peaks is incredible. Obviously, there's not much, if anything, in the way of kind of air pollution down there. So if you get out on a nice clear day, then, yeah, the views and just the stuff you get to see, it's absolutely stunning. So, yeah, it's, it's a massive privilege. And I think these winter trips that we do, um, so you, you tend to get out for a week uh, towards the start of winter and then one just towards the end of winter. And that obviously does a lot of good for you and kind of reduces any cabin fever that you might have from being on station for such a long time. Um, but so my first winter trip last year, back in May, um, I was tent bound for two and a half days in poor weather. So it's, it's not always getting out and climbing up these amazing peaks or going skiing and stuff like that. You can often be stuck in a tent for days on end. And the tent is the kind of classic, if you've seen pictures of uh, Captain Scott's expedition and stuff, the pyramid tents is pretty much exactly the same as that. So it's inside, it's about six foot by six foot. So you and one other person, it's, uh, it's pretty cramped living, but it's quite comfortable actually when you get, when you get settled in. Um, 
but yeah, the, the opportunities to go and do that, and you know, to think that you can essentially go mountaineering or you can go skiing in the middle of uh, an Antarctic winter, um, you know, not pay for that is, is is pretty amazing. I don't think I, I don't think anyone offers any kind of trips to the Antarctic in winter, you know, any kind of commercial trips and stuff like that. I don't think you can put a price on being able to do that. And it's, it's one of the, the great things about the job, actually, and that, that experience is it's, it's priceless, really. So, yeah, yeah, we're very, very privileged to be able to do that. And you mentioned Scott there and some, you know, previous great explorers like Shackleton and this kind of thing. And I know that you spent a lot of time on South Georgia where Shackleton is his name is synonymous with that island. But do you, because there's so few people who get the opportunity to go down there and to go to the places where you're going, do you kind of feel like you're part of this kind of polar exploration legacy? Does that kind of reverberate through the team? Um, I think the... <laughs> it's an interesting one. Um, it is definitely an adventure going down there. Um, I don't think it's as as wild or it's as dangerous as it was back in those days because we've been doing it for so long now, and you know, bass have been operating since well the sixties really um, down there, and so we've become very good at kind of dealing with the environment, and keeping ourselves safe. Um, you do feel like you are a bit of an Antarctic explorer, certainly when you first go down. Uh, but one of the best bits of advice that I was given when I first started um, was that uh, uh, I was kind of kind of loosely warned, if you like, that, you know, a lot of people go down and they think that they are, you know, they've, they've made it, you know, they must be amazing if they've gone down and they work for Bass and, you know, going to the Antarctic and, they, you know, they get kind of full of confidence and think they're very special. But I was kind of told that it was like, no, no, you're just someone else doing another job. That, that That's all it is. So, yeah, we, we do try and stay grounded, but I think uh, a lot of people will kind of leave and well, uh, we kind of take the mick out of each other and you know, describe each other as uh, Antarctic heroes and stuff like that. So um, <laughs> yeah. I think we've we've got into it and stuff now. And so, yeah, I mean, it, it, it can't really be compared to, you know, how it was for the likes of Scott and Shackleton, but um, just still a long way from home. The environment's still very dangerous. So there is still a bit of that in there, I think. But uh, generally, it's, it's pretty comfortable living, I have to say. And so I guess the reason why I asked you that question about a legacy is I wanted to know from your perspective, is exploration still a big part of the job for Bass? And is Antarctica, has it all been mapped? Is everything discovered? Or is there still parts of the continent that is unmapped, uncharted? And is exploration still part of the work? Um. Yeah, exploration is still part of the work, but it's not the, the it's almost like a, a byproduct of a lot of the science that is done now, or, you know, it's, it's part of the journey to get the science done to get to that particular, uh, field site, um, where, you know, people are conducting the science. Um, the, I mean, I mean, Antarctica is kind of mapped, but it's not mapped in, in great detail in certain places. Um, there are still large parts of the continent that no one's been to. Uh, there's still hundreds of peaks that no one has been up. Um, 
And so, yeah, I mean, it is still a great wilderness out there and there's there's a huge amount of unknowns and it's kind of constantly changing because essentially, what, 98%, I think, of the continent is covered in ice, only kind of 2 or 3%. Uh, of the kind of land, the rock is actually showing. So, and that ice is constantly moving and changing. So, although it's happening very, very slowly, it's definitely changing all the time. But yeah, I mean, there's there's still a huge amount to do down there. But yeah, so the British Antarctic Survey's focus is all environmental science, and yeah, we do get to do a bit of exploration in, in winter with these winter trips. But um, and some people might get to do the odd thing when they're out on a field trip doing their science or, you know, because of their science, they're able to do a bit of kind of exploring or adventuring. But, um, yes, it's not really why we're funded anymore, but um, it is definitely, I think, bass and the job attracts people with an adventurous uh, spirit, if you like. Right. And I guess we'd love to just open it up a little bit more to explain about the British Antarctic Survey. And can you give just an overview of, how it started and what you do today and what is the main kind of focus? Is it mostly related to climate change related issues? Yeah, sure. So, yeah, I mean, Bass is, before it was the British Antarctic Survey, it was the Falkland Islands Dependence or FIDS as they were known. Um, and some people still refer to the people on station, certainly from the ships, the, the Bass ships that is like to refer to the guys on station as FIDS. Um, so that goes way back. Um, the exact year, I can't actually remember off the top of my head, but we're talking the 50s and the 60s uh, when that all started. And then it changed into the British Antarctic Survey. Um, and there was all kinds of science going on there, you know, um, the atmospheric stuff um, and geology and things. Now it's a lot more focused on um climate change and things. So um, if you like that, what we're really interested in now is the, um, are getting ice cores from the various parts of the ice sheet you know, on the continent. Um, and you can get ice cores, which is basically, well, if you like, it's about a flag, if you like a golfing flagpole um, length, but then about two or three inches in diameter, we can extract these kind of lengths of ice from the ice sheet and then within those ice cores are small bubbles trapped air and so you can extract the air from them and if you can date how old that ice is you can tell uh, how much carbon was in the atmosphere you know back to 250,000 years ago is the age of some of this ice so that lets us look into and we can tell what how the atmosphere was made up and we can track that and so on. So that that's now I'm obviously not a scientist if you can't tell from that explanation, um, but that's that's a large part of what we do. And that's probably why we get most of our, our funding, which is generally from the British taxpayer. Um, uh, Bass, kind of going back further, um, was actually responsible for discovering the hole in the ozone, which was caused by CFCs. Um, and so, yeah, there's, there's been some great science being done by Bass over the years. Um, and now it's really all kind of a lot of the science is definitely focusing on climate change, as I say. And what do you kind of see in terms of changes that are happening in the continent and the things that the scientists are finding down there? Is there anything that you can share in terms of 
latest kind of news in terms of climate science down there? And if not, is there a resource available that people can go on and get reliable news from about climate science in Antarctica? Yeah, sure. So, so for me, kind of day to day, you know, the time I've been sort of spent down there since 2013, really, it's quite it's difficult to see a change because it all happens so slowly. But um, I saw a picture of the ice cliffs just across from the station, essentially the view I have from my office on station uh, from 12, 15 years ago, and I can tell there's a difference. Um, you just it happens so slowly that you don't you know it's a bit like trying to watch paint dry or something it's, it's hard to, to see the difference uh, if you're just watching it in real time there's definitely a difference and there's definitely a depletion of ice around where we are um, as far as Bass one really exciting thing that's going on at the moment is the Thwaites project which is a collaboration between Bass and then the uh, United States Antarctic Programme USAP Um which is looking at the Thwaites Glacier, which is this huge glacier in uh, West Antarctica that um, is basically pumping a huge amount of fresh water now as it's melting uh, into the ocean. And it's been such a difficult place to get to because there's no stations within hundreds of miles of Thwaites Glacier. It's really in a kind of an uncharted zone, if you like, of Antarctica. Um, and the only way that essentially scientists or any science could be done there was by essentially Bass and USAP kind of collaborating and working together and kind of pooling their, their resources. Um, so yeah, on the Bass website, there'll, there'll be news about the uh, Thwaites Glacier, or even if you just Google Thwaites Glacier, I'm sure there'll be dozens of articles and stuff in there. Now, the BBC certainly covered it a few months ago, and they had a couple of their reporters actually down there. We flew them onto Thwaites Glacier and stuff, and they filmed some of the science as it was going on. Uh, so we've got scientists essentially camped on top of the glacier itself, which is I think the glacier itself is about the size of the UK. I might be a bit out there, but it's absolutely vast. Um, and then also at the front of the glacier on the on the ocean, uh, there's there been a couple of ships that have been involved deploying these remote uh, submarines that they have, these small kind of six-foot-long submarines, to have a look at the underside of the glacier and to have a look at the seabed uh, below the glacier as well. So there's, there's a huge amount of science going on there at the moment. So that's, that's really interesting. There's quite a lot of exciting stuff that I, I expect will come out from that in the you know kind of coming months or, or years, you know, there's a few years of this project left to go. So it'll be really interesting to see what happens there. And is that a, a big part of the job that you find yourself doing and, and Bass does in terms of getting media down there as well and then trying to get the story out, the science out, but also this, the kind of narrative of what is actually happening in the Antarctic. Is that a big part of the, the mission? Uh, it's, not, it's not part of my job necessarily, but yes, uh, we had a couple of, uh, so we had the BBC visit us actually on station at Rother, as well as this other team that went to Thwaites Glacier early in the year. Uh, we had Sky News out there as well, and they, they did a couple of um, sort of um, reports, if you like, on the things that are going on and around station and how station life runs and so on. Um, and there is a, a, a media department at Bass as well, which are kind of quite keen to get the story out there. And we're obviously helped by, you know, the public being kind of gripped by, you know, programs like Frozen Planet and Planet Earth and, and things like that. And so, yeah, there generally is quite a lot of interest in what we do. And I think, you know, 
generally people find my job quite interesting. You tend to find two types of people um, and they're at each end of the scale. You know, if someone asks me what I do and I say I work for Bass or work in the Antarctic, they're, they're either absolutely fascinated and like to ask me lots of questions or it just completely goes over the head, which is totally fine. Um, but yeah, it is a job that, that there's quite a lot of people find very, very interesting. I think that will always be the case. And I think that definitely goes back to you know the time of Scott and Shackleton. I think uh, what they were doing down there, you know, 100, 115, 20 years ago, uh, definitely gripped the, kind of, the nation and all, almost the world as well and, and what was going on. And I think and I hope that that kind of interest will continue because while it's so cut off and so remote, the Antarctic's obviously um, this vast wilderness that if kind of, if we abuse or, you know, don't treat correctly. And, you know, I think there's this kind of, you know, whatever I do won't have an effect. You know, I live in the UK or, you know, I, I live in the States or, or wherever. Um, actually, it does. What, what we do kind of in the real world, if you like, definitely affects the Antarctic. Um, and so and if we get that wrong, then there's some pretty big ramifications. So, for example, um, if all the sea ice, uh, sorry, if all the ice on Antarctica was to melt, which I don't think even the kind of worst scientific predictions are saying is likely to happen for hundreds of years yet. But if it did all melt, uh, global sea level would rise by 59 meters around the world, which is obviously massive. And I don't know, that that might affect a billion people on the planet, I guess. Like just looking at how many people live near the coast. So, um, yeah, I, I probably went a bit off track there. <laughs> but, um, no, no, it's, yeah, it's obviously very important. It's actually um, it's a great place to go to because I was going to ask you. Um, so Antarctica is known as the, the last free continent on Earth. Can you just explain a little bit why that is and how the place is operated between countries? Yeah, sure. So, um Yes, the, the continent isn't owned by anyone. You know, there's no country that kind of claims it entirely as their own. Uh, there are a few countries, including the, the UK, which claims uh, a, a section, of, if you like, of the Antarctic. And so there's a British Antarctic territory. Uh, we consider it as one of our uh, British overseas territories. But there is also, which kind of overrules that um, in a way, is uh, there's the Antarctic Treaty, which... I can't remember the exact number, maybe 54 nations have signed up to this Antarctic Treaty, which basically says that no one is going to exploit it um, for you know any resources, whether that's oil or minerals, uh, things like that. Um, no one's going to kind of set up a, a permanent kind of uh, community or a city there or anything like that. And so, yeah, as part of that Antarctic Treaty, all those kind of territorial claims are put to one side and the continent at the heart of the treaty is is science essentially um, and trying to understand the Antarctic and not just because we want to understand the Antarctic but also the Antarctic will help us essentially unlock a lot of the, the past, a lot of the history to do with the whole of whole of the planet. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's really nice, actually, and it's a unique thing that there's essentially all these different nations working together, even though there are a lot of them working remotely, we all share a lot of resources, a lot of the information, a lot of the data that's collected from these science projects um, to help understand not just Antarctica, but the, the world as a whole as well. So 
um, yeah, it's, it's particularly special in that cases in, in that way as well. Yeah. And so that the Antarctic Treaty is up for review in the year 2041. So from the British Antarctic Survey's perspective, and I assume most other countries down there, everyone is going to want that to be signed again for another 50 years, correct? Yeah, it's one of those things. It would be an absolute tragedy if it wasn't signed again. And for, you know, I, I can't see it happening, but, you know, if it fell apart uh, for one reason or another, it definitely wouldn't be for the good of the Antarctica or the, the world as a whole. You know, if it suddenly opened up and people started abusing uh, the environment, then that's it's not going to do any good doing that. So, yeah, hopefully it's signed again. And often at uh, these kind of the treaty meetings, there's often a bit of, you know, um, you know, people don't agree entirely on everything, but I think everyone agrees that it's this incredible kind of last wilderness, you know, unique part of the planet and um, it needs to be protected, needs to be looked after. So I think everyone involved definitely has the kind of the Antarctic's best interests at heart. Um, and yeah, did, like I said before, what happens down there does definitely affect everyone else around the world and you know, we can't really afford to ignore or neglect it because um, it is essentially a bit of a, a kind of warning for us as far as climate change and stuff goes so yeah hopefully it continues um, and the more nations that sign up the better really I think what are the what could the potential ramifications be if that treaty is not signed and what is down there that countries might want to exploit so, well, well, whaling's one thing that, that could return, and there is a little bit of that that goes on at the moment, and that's definitely frowned upon. Um, but generally, that, that's not done much, and that, that's something that, that may pick up should the Antarctic Treaty disappear. I don't think it's strictly spoken about in there. As, you know, I think for commercial reasons you can't do it, but you can you can whale for scientific reasons. So there's a bit of a grey area in there, but that's something that should the treaty disappear would potentially become easier for whalers. Uh, there's a huge amount of marine life down there. So krill's one uh, species down there, which is absolutely huge and is actually the cornerstone species for the whole kind of marine life in the Antarctic. So yeah, if that was overfished and those numbers were totally depleted, then then the whales would struggle, the seals would struggle, the birds would struggle. The whole ecosystem would be in kind of big trouble down there. So, so that's one of the big things. Um, I don't know of much in the way of oil or anything uh, that people would want to kind of mine for or anything like that or drill for, but that's something that could potentially happen, which currently you cannot do. Um, down there, you can't exploit the Antarctic uh, for its natural resources and so on. Um, so that's something that is kind of protected by the, the treaty. And yeah, that's not something that we'd want to lose. In all likelihood, it'll be a long time before anyone had the technology to, to really exploit it fully, but um, still not a risk we would want to take, I don't think. Right. And that's the opposite from the Arctic, because obviously in the Arctic, there is drilling and oil and coal mining and countries can exploit it because it's not protected by a similar treaty like the Antarctic Treaty. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And just, yeah, another reason why the Antarctic is so special. Um, 
And yeah, because there's obviously a quite a large, relatively human presence up in, in the Arctic compared to, to the Antarctic. That there's something about it is maybe inevitable, but um, I don't know if we can learn from, so if you like, mistakes or what we're doing up in the Arctic, and hopefully, yeah, don't take them down to the Antarctic at any point. Sounds like everyone needs to get their pens out ready. Yeah. Um, well, yeah. Hopefully, hopefully that treaty can get signed. Um, I, I, I don't think as individuals um, there's an awful lot people can do about that, um, other than essentially voting for uh, the right people in, in their governments. Because um, I think that's done at a kind of governmental level or through the scientific bodies associated with governments around the world. Um, but if people are interested in, you know, learning more about the Antarctic, then whichever country you're from, there's every there's a chance that uh, there might be a national program uh, which conducts science down there. And as I said, you know, there's all kinds of jobs available if people are interested and they should look that up. And a lot of the nations will take people uh, who are not from their, their country. Um, so just, you know, if, if your country's not a part of it, then don't think that's your chance is gone. There's always someone who, who may take someone from another nation. Um, and there's quite a thriving, there's a bit of a booming um, sort of cruise ship industry or expedition ship industry now that uh, that takes people down to the Antarctic and they get to experience it. Um, I, I feel kind of, I've got slightly mixed feelings about that. Um, in, in one way, I, I think uh, the less people going to the Antarctic is probably good, is probably the better thing. Uh, but at the same time, I think when people see the Antarctic, and I think you might be one of those people, I was certainly one of those people when I first went, uh, was that um, it was definitely a life-changing event for me. And I think that's uh, one of those phrases that's often thrown around, you know, that's a life-changing thing. Um, but I, I think going to the Antarctic the first time was definitely life-changing for me. And I think I've said this to you before, that I think the world would be a better place if more people could actually see what the Antarctic was. And I think just because it, it makes me feel very small and very insignificant, um, but also that um, something much kind of bigger at stake and, you know, without kind of sounding self-serving, um, it would, yeah, it, it's good if more people can see it if they go down there and they understand it and they appreciate it. But, uh, yeah, I've, I've got mixed feelings about kind of hordes of people going down, but um, right. it's, it's not for me to know what to say, really. So we're just getting towards the the end of this now, Matthew, and I just want to um, take the time to say thank you very much for talking. And also, when will be the next time that we can talk to you? So I, I'd love to have another update after you've been down there maybe um, for a month or so, and we can pick back up where we've left off because there's just so many things that we can talk about um, and we don't know what's going to happen with this pandemic and which way it's going to go. So it would be interesting if you're up for that in a couple months time to touch base again. Yeah, yeah, we can do that. Uh, that should be pretty cool. Yeah, in just over a couple of months time, we'll be heading towards midwinter, which is obviously a big thing down there. And that's, that's quite a special time. And so yeah, that, that'd probably be quite a good time to, to connect again. So yeah, we should do that. And will you be able to get any sort of uh, connection down there for another call? Yeah, I think we can do that. So actually, as a part of this whole pandemic, the coronavirus, they've actually, Bass Cambridge, have put a bit of money in and increased our bandwidth. Um, 
on station. So essentially people can help and stay in touch with their family and friends and stuff. But generally in winter, um, there is just enough internet if you pick the right time of day when not many people are online that, yeah, it's possible to get a decent line. So um, it might be a bit crackly, but uh, that might just have to be the price that we pay. This is the last question that I want to ask you. Are you going to go onto Facebook or onto whatever social media, whatever news and check for regular updates of what's happening in the rest of the world with this COVID pandemic? Or are you going to completely shut down, go into Antarctic winter, forget about humanity and check back in in six months time and assess what's happened? No, I generally, I try and read the kind of news every day that I'm down there and we get a small kind of newspaper, if you like, that's emailed through this and that gets printed off and kind of gets brought to the the morning break and stuff like that. But I actually, I think this year, more than any other year, people will be kind of watching what's happening uh, out in the real world, probably more than ever, actually. Um, And I I think from a, a mental health point of view, it's also quite a good thing to just kind of, keep your finger on the pulse of what's going on back in the real world because, yeah, it's a shock to the system getting back to the real world anyway without kind of having totally ignored it for six or seven months. Right. Well, I expect the the British Antarctic Survey job page to be inundated in the next um, matter of days. I'll put my resume in there as well, Matthew. But listen, it's been great to talk and uh, thank you so much for the time and, and best of luck down there and we'll speak soon. Yeah, you're more than welcome. Thanks for uh, having me. Yeah, hopefully uh, stay safe and dodge the virus as much as you can. You are listening to the Two Poles Podcast, produced by farfeatures.com. You can support the series through patreon.com slash farfeatures. Finally, we're new to podcasts, so please let us know what you think. Leave us a review at ratethispodcast.com slash two poles. Next time, really excited to bring you an interview with polar legend Sir Robert Swan. Until next time, that's all.